What we want to do now is discuss how do we know God through language. And we're going to play off of a little bit more of that informal fallacy on equivocation. But let me tell you a little bit about where we are in our culture today. Most of you know that the postmodern generation is becoming kind of the predominant mindset among people today. And what I want to explain to you is that back in the early 20th century, there were people called the New Orthodox, the New Orthodox Movement. How many have heard of that term? Okay, many have. The New Orthodox Movement was a problem uh, to evangelicalism because they were men and women who denied that God actually speaks to us through the Bible, through what's called the analogical use of language, and we're going to be looking at in that in a minute. What they claimed was that the only way we can know God is to have a mystical experience. Okay. In fact, um, Karl Barth in his church dogmatics, he said it this way. He says, the Bible is not revelation. It merely recorded God's revelation. Do you see the distinction? So these were men and women who claimed that we didn't have access to knowledge of God through language. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about three different categories of how language is used. And I'm going to make the point and prove that the Bible, in fact, uses the analogical use of language and this equivocal usage of language that the the neo-Orthodox used and the postmoderns is, in fact, a false view. So let me just show you the views that all become very apparent. Okay, let's talk about the different views. The first view is the univocal usage of language. Now, this is the definition Then I'm going to give you an example that will make it more clear. This is a one-to-one direct correspondence of language to the thing signified. Okay, now let me give you the example, and Bob wrote this example, and I like this. It's very simple and to the point. Bill loves his wife. Now, what we're going to look at is the term loves, and I'm going to assert that the, the word love here is corresponding directly to the definition of love in the Ephesians 5 sense, or in the sense that, like, remember in Ephesians it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So even to the point where we're willing to lay our lives down. So we're going to say that is the definition of the love being used here. So Bill loves his wife. And it's a one-to-one correspondence between the term and the thing signified. Now, let me show you the analogical usage of language. And this is how I believe the Bible speaks to us. This is a similar but not an exact one-to-one usage of language. In this usage of language, meaning differs only in degree. This is the key part. In degree, not in kind. Okay, so there's a difference only in degree, but not in kind. Let me show you the next example. It'll become very clear. Bill loves his dog. Now, certainly, hopefully anyway, Bill does not love his dog to the same degree he loves his wife. If they're both in the water, he is going to hopefully save his wife rather than his dog, if Bill has any sense at all, right? So what we're doing here is, yes, um, Bill still loves his dog. Don't get me wrong. But it's not to the same degree, okay? And, oh, Bob, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I think you need to clarify that. It isn't just about degree. It's about order of being. Okay, yeah. Why don't you expand on that? Okay, see, uh, the reason we're doing this, because God is transcendent, God is a different order of being than any other being in the universe. Okay, so this God who is transcendent in his being has attributes. These attributes, one of which is love. So even that verse that you quoted, you, you see the analogical because yeah. husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. But we really can't exactly because Christ right. is unique and different. Yeah. Okay? He is God. So God loving, being loving is only analogically like 
humans loving. But it is analogical. So it would be better. Let's think of a different example then. How about Christ loves his church? Right. That would be completely... Well, well, still we're using language though. But my, my whole point is we need to see some distinction between univocal and analogical. Yeah, yeah. right. It's, that's why we yep. have to start with the human yep. because there's... When we're talking about God, univocal could only have to do a God. That's you right. You can talk about the Father and the Son yeah. univocally, yep. but not God and any human. So what you're right. doing is correct, but the term degree isn't comprehensive enough. Okay, yeah. Because you could say, I love my wife more than I love my dog, but that's not exactly what we're saying. Because right. a love between a husband and a wife would be two beings of the same order. Two human beings. Right. And when you predicate love of a human for a human being and you predicate love for another human being, you're talking about the same thing. Yeah. You know what? That, that helps. Let's, let's stop right there. And again, because you mentioned something very important. Here's where the debate is going and here's why it's important. God is of a certain nature that we're not. Here's what the neo-orthodox and the emergence are saying. God is completely other than we are. That's what their argument is. He's completely holy. And he's perfect and we're not. In other words, he's infinite, we're finite. And their argument is how can the finite ever grasp anything of the infinite? And so the neo-orthodox and the emergence are saying we can't know anything about God. That's what they're saying. Okay? What we're going to do is we're going to make the argument that we can know some things about God, but not exhaustively. Okay? That's what we're trying to say. So let me, let me give you an example real quick. I was talking to Bob on this on the phone and see if you like this analogy. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now, do any of us as human beings know what it is like to be all-powerful? Certainly we don't. Okay, We're humans. He's different than we are. However, do we know something about power? Okay, Yes, we do. And we know it by way of analogy. In other words, all of us have had cars that are more powerful than other cars, or we see... You know, in the Old Testament or the biblical times, you'd have some animals are more powerful than other animals. Some rulers are more powerful than other rulers. We see distinctions in power. We understand power. So therefore, although we don't know what it's like to be all-powerful, we can still know something about God by the way of analogy because we know something about power. Do you see what I'm saying? And God has created us in that way. So hold on to that. We're going to talk more about that in the next slide. Um, do you like that? Is that a better... Um, Okay, good. Now, here, let me throw this next, um, this next concept up here on language. The equivocal usage of language. This is a dissimilar usage of language so that the normal meaning of the term is changed. So now I think it will become clear here. Here's the example. Bill loves to shoot ducks. Okay? Well, now love is being used in a different sort altogether. It's this idea that he enjoys to shoot ducks. But he certainly doesn't, in any sense love to shoot ducks in the sense that he loves his wife or he loves his dog. You see what I'm saying? It's more of an enjoyment. So that would be the equivocal usage of language. Now, the neo-orthodox and the emergence are saying this is all we have. All we are stuck with is the equivocal usage of language. Because we're finite and God is infinite, we can never say anything truly about God. He is wholly other. In fact, that's what I'm going to talk about, the incomprehensibility of God. That's exactly what Karl Barth and other neo-Orthodox theologians claimed, that God was wholly other, and so we don't have access to him. Okay? Now remember, friends, if God is wholly other, that sounds very pious to say that, but if it's true, then we have no connected point to get at him. It would be like you and I giving a German class to an ant. The ant, there's no point of contact. They don't understand anything we're saying. 
But God has made us in his image such that we have a contact point. Now, again, I'm not trying to elevate man. And, you know, God is infinite. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all these things. But he's made us in his image so that by analogy we can know some things truly about him. Okay? Now, what I'm going to show you is what happened with these theologians is they performed a fallacy of equivocation on the very term incomprehensibility of God. What that used to have... Let me give you the definition here before I get carried away. The incomprehensibility of God does not mean that God cannot be known at all. That's what the neo-Orthodox and the emergents are saying. But that rather he cannot be known fully or exhaustively. Okay? If he could be known fully or exhaustively, that would be the univocal usage of language. What we're arguing for is the analogical use. Does that make sense? We know him by, yeah. There's a, a verse, and I'm, I think it's in Romans, but it talks about who can know the mind of God, but we have the mind of Christ. Yeah. So are you talking there? There is a touch point because Christ has, uh, you know, been incarnated? or Well, certainly sin has affected every aspect of our being. In fact, in uh, Titus, uh, Paul makes the argument that to those who are defiled, who are perishing, even their mind, it's, he says, is defiled. I think it's in Titus 1.15, if I recall. Okay, So certainly, sin and our sin nature is such that sin has affected even our minds, Okay, and we have depravity. But what, So in other words, when we have the mind of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. So the living God now is, in a certain sense, giving us the ability to perceive and receive things that we couldn't before. But what I'm making is a different argument, and the argument is, has to do with more of the, the general character of who God is versus who we are just as creatures. We're a creature as he's the creator. Okay? So in other words, he's the infinite and we're the finite. And so the argument isn't necessarily, is, I don't know if this is helping you. What I'm getting at is he is infinite, we're finite, so we can only know so much of him. Right. But he sent his son, you know, to become a man uh, so that we could have even greater revelation of him. That's right. Is that right? right? Yep, that's right. Amen. That's further revelation exactly, right? And so, yes, we know far more through the special revelation, through the word, and also Christ incarnate than we would if we just had general revelation. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good distinction. But now, hold on a sec to this. Let, let me show you something. Let me talk about the, the incomprehensibility of God. And I want to show you a verse that suggests this very thing. For instance, in Isaiah, or, uh, Psalm 145.3. I actually had another one from Isaiah as well, but this one in Psalm 145.3. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Unsearchable here doesn't mean the fact that we can't find it, but rather it cannot be exhausted. Okay? So we see this idea in the scriptures that yes, the greatness of God and the knowledge of God cannot be exhausted. And what I want to say to you tonight is that that's actually good news. Because God is infinite and we are finite, Think about when we're in the new Jerusalem, in the eternal state, dwelling with him forever, we're always going to have more to learn about him. We'll never fully exhaust who he is. As the, um, is it the Westminster Confession that says the chief end of man is to glorify God in what? Enjoy him forever. Okay, we will never exhaust the greatness of our God. But saying that does not mean we can't know true things about him. In fact, the scriptures declare that we can. And the way we know things about our God, what's revealed to us, is through the scriptures. Okay? Now, let me just show you. I use this in my emergent lecture in 2 Peter chapter 1. And listen to the argument that Peter makes here and what he's admonishing Christians to. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you 
in the knowledge of God, and I take this as an objective genitive, I think a, a good case in the context, it should be an objective genitive, meaning it's us having the knowledge of God rather than the knowledge belonging to God. And of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, for this very reason also, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control. So here Peter is exhorting us all to knowledge. How can knowledge be possible if God is wholly other and all of the language we have is equivocal and we're never saying anything meaningful about God? So here's what I'm saying to you tonight. is The, the method of communication is that the scriptures speak of God by way of analogy. Again, the, the, I think the, the, the analogy that helped me the most was God is all-powerful, and we don't know what that's like, but we do know something about power. And therefore, we know, we know something about God by the way of analogy. We don't know what it means to be omniscient, but we do know some things about knowledge. So therefore, we know things about God by way of analogy. So God uses the analogical use of, use of language to speak to us through the Scriptures. Okay? That is being under attack by the neo-Orthodox in the early 20th century, and now the emerging church and the postmoderns have repackaged it. It's the same thing, and they're just recycling the same heresy, saying you can't know who God is, okay? Because all we have is the equivocal usage of language, okay? That's, that's, what the, that's part of the battle. Next week we're going to be talking about how we know things to be true in epistemology. Bob? Um, yeah, the, the real answer is, and I remember we talked about this in theology class, God chose the analogy. That's right. The infinite God speaks to humans in their language, giving terms that he chooses to reveal himself to us. And we certainly, we know it's analogical and not univocal because God's love is truly love, but it's a different order than our love. But, But if God says that he loves us as his people, we can understand that. That's right. Logically. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Yeah. He's condescended himself to speak to us yes. through his word, hasn't he? And it's and it's really by grace. It's his mercy and grace that allows that to happen. Now I'm I'm done. Then I've I've shot my clip here, or whatever you want to say. Okay. So you guys go ahead and we can have a discussion now. I had one more question. Uh, yeah. And I just want to see if this is correct, what you said earlier. You said the neo-Orthodox yeah. believe, that, uh, believe in mysticism. And do they believe then that the prophets receive their knowledge through pagan techniques? I, I don't know if I would say that, but here, here's what I would say that the neo-Orthodox taught. They taught that the scriptures, the Bible, you and I say, uh, this is the problem with the neo-Orthodox. We say the Bible is the word of God, Okay. A man like Karl Barth would say the Bible becomes the Word of God when the Holy Spirit and you enter into, I want to say an exercise, but into uh, a relationship or in, into, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, the Word of God ceases to be the Word of God at all until you interact with it with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the issue with that. I'm not claiming that we can have all knowledge of God without the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. I, I can't be regenerate unless the Spirit works upon me. But here's the issue. The Word of God remains God's revelation irrespective of whether I can understand it or not. 
The analogy I like to use is a Ferrari is a Ferrari whether I can drive a stick shift or not. It's still a Ferrari. So, okay? so the Word of God stands without me acting upon it. Right. Yeah. In and other words, it's still his revelation. And in fact, if I don't understand it, Jesus says in John 14, what is it, Bob, where he says, well, the one where he says, um, this is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words that... Or 12.48, thank you. John 12.48, this is that which will judge you in the last day, the very words that I have spoken. Okay? So in other words, God is calling us into account by the very words he's spoken. And if I don't understand them, I'm the one um, who's liable for it. Okay? In my sinful condition. So in other words, that doesn't stop being the word of God just because I, don't, I can't understand it. That's how I would critique new orthodoxy. It is the word of God irrespective of whether I understand it or not. They would say it becomes the word of God. Becomes, yeah, that's how they phrase it. That's yeah. right. It becomes yep. the word of God when you have some sort of an existential, existential, yeah, like an existential a experience. 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 Yeah. There you go. They so love you take experience. A blind leap. In other words, instead of evidence that reveals the truth, you take a blind leap of faith. Yeah. You have an existential experience, and that's your revelation. And the Bible somehow fits into that. Yeah. And what I'm claiming is that post. Modern theology just repackaged version of that's the all orthodoxy. It is. Yep, it's it's based on experience. That's the word. Yep. Have you heard of the term reader response theory? Because that's in the literary world. That's what we call this um, okay. idea of reader response. In that, so the the act of literature, literature is being created in the moment that the reader is engaged in the text, and whatever they are pulling out of that in that moment is the meaning, and therefore. I will have different, it'll be a different piece of literature in essence yeah. for me than it will be for my husband. Sure. And if we read the same text tomorrow, it's going to be a different piece of literature. And that is rampant in literary yeah. theory and even in the elementary schools, they teach a watered-down version of reader response theory. Yeah. And so it's very pervasive. Yeah, what that really is is a denial of authorial intent. There was a man named Edie Hirsch who really grounded, um, he was an old evangelical who said, the meaning of the Bible is tied to the author. Now, who ultimately is the author? Well, of course, it's God. Of course, he uses the agency of human authors as well. Um, so the point being is that would be a denial of authorial intent. Okay. So what you're doing, it'd be like, um, can, this is an example I gave to Bob. You know, at Bethel, I left, and I, I don't make any bones about it. I was upset with them, and we had a falling out. But they charged me a certain bill. What if I said, well, the way I interpret the bill, it's a thousand bucks, but the way I interpret it, it's twenty-six, and I wrote on the check. Okay, they don't allow me to get away with that. So, in other words, it's what Francis Schaeffer used to call, yeah, putting it up in the upper story. In other words, nobody lives in the way that these um, scholars claim that we read theology. In other words, reader intent, where we're reading out the meaning, and we we can disre- disregard the authorial intent. Nobody lives that way. Um, if you're going to charge somebody, if you owe your husband or, well, you wouldn't owe him, but if you owe him 20 bucks and you give him five and you just say, well, that's the way I interpret it, he's not going to let you get away with it. Yeah. See, so we don't live that way. Yeah. Right. And the other question that I often um, I ask my students and stuff is the idea, does, does language come first or meaning come first? And I think that's part of this conversation, too. What, what pre-exists? Well, well, meaning. And then we, have, we create language to reflect and communicate that meaning. But that's not the way a postmodern mindset works. And so then, you know. So what you're saying is if you're the author, what, are you saying if you're the author, what comes first, language or meaning? 
Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that, the, the, that there's truth, there's meaning, yeah. and we have to communicate that so we create a language I agree. to yep. do that. But in the reader response theory, it's the, the language um, so, uh, exists before the meaning, and then the act of reading creates the meaning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's right. That's the problem. Yep. Yep. Again, that stuff's been around. I had to study for that book you're talking about. Oh, you did? Okay. Validity you... and Interpretation. Oh, that would have been a good one. I had to read Van Hooser. Oh, it's really hard to read. But uh, yeah. uh, then Dr. Stein yeah. took his theory and wrote it into a simple book, which we oh. used for our hermeneutics class here. Oh, that would have been helpful. Yeah, so yeah. the author determines the meaning, not the reader. And, and you're right, Casey, this is rampant. Yeah. But only in philosophy literature, anything you can throw in Schaefer's upper story. Because I guarantee you, you don't go take a course in uh, uh, chemical engineering and, and, uh, and use that. Yeah. Okay? I mean, you, you, you'd be trying to make, uh, I don't know what, you know, lawn fertilizer, you might make dynamite. Yeah. You can't, a language, if language could not convey meaning validly from an author to a reader, we could not have technology we couldn't yeah. have automobiles. We couldn't teach somebody how to build a house. We couldn't teach somebody how to cook a meal. In fact, all human enterprise would happen like what happened at the Tower of Babel. Communication yeah. ceased. Everybody scattered. That's right. And so when, they, when people do that and try to take Christianity down that path, that is terrible. Oh. It's, 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 it's like an utter rebellion against God who has spoken to us. Yeah. Oh, well said. Yeah. Anything else, you guys? I know we're almost on time. We got some more. When I was discussing something with somebody, she's a Catholic, and we were talking about, was she was trying to say there are many ways to heaven. You don't need to be a Christian. Yeah. And I was pointing her to Scripture, and every time I would point to Scripture, her response was, "Well, God's bigger than the Bible." <laughs> How do you respond to that? Because it, it just doesn't make sense, but I was like... Yeah, well, it's a non-sequitur. We're not making the argument that God is somehow smaller than the Bible or larger than... This isn't a volume issue. Um, what we're claiming is that the Bible is, in fact, the revelation from God. It is God condescending himself to talk to man and to tell us what we must do to be saved. So the way I would respond to say... The way I think we have to approach a gal like that is to assume she distrusts the Word of God as being the final authority. And I think in a case like that, it's like a doctor. You almost have to diagnose what's the issue. The issue is when you bring up John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, showing that Jesus is the only way. She doesn't accept that as an authority. So what we're going to have to do with her, our homework would be to prove that, in fact, the Word of God is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And we can do that often using predictive prophecy. That's very helpful. One I always use is Daniel 8. I say, how did Daniel, writing 540 B.C., predict four kingdoms that would come about in succession? Um, The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Romans. How did he do that? Unless, in fact, there's a divine author behind it. And so just what I do is I always have a storehouse of um, predictive prophecy that I'll pull out, and I'll demonstrate, in fact, that the, the, the Word of God is divine. There, then you have an authority that she really can't get around. Because now all of a sudden that's divine, you see, because you've demonstrated the miraculous. So that's how I would probably approach her on that. And I think she was saying, but there might be more that he didn't reveal. Um, in fact, that's answered even in the scriptures in uh, the book of Revelation, if anyone adds or subtracts to the book. So but he then, wouldn't contradict. 
What's that? He wouldn't contradict himself either. Exactly. So now, yeah. <laughs> right, so now we get back to the text again and we can make the argument that God has limited the revelation between Genesis and Re- the book of Revelation. You see what I'm saying? So that's the extent of the canon, the 66 books. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Just an aside, I am forever intrigued and inspired by the language beyond words that you find in Psalm 19 where the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display wow. knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Wow. It's beyond. That's right. Beyond. And that would be, that's a beautiful scripture verse that tells us that the general revelation is sufficient to show us some true things about God. Yeah, that's, that's a Romans 1.20 style passage. Yep, very good. I love it. It's beautiful. Anybody else? Now, oh yeah, Mike has got one. What about the verse at the end of John? And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Yes, wow. So yeah, here, the biblical authors, remember 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed, literally breathed out by God. And so the biblical writers are inspired as to what to include and what to exclude in the scripture. Certainly, uh, yeah, if they would have recorded everything that he did, there'd be a lot of volumes, wouldn't there? It would be unreadable. It'd be un- so yeah, even the scripture, or the Holy Spirit inspired them in such a way where they knew what to exclude and include. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Now, I just wanted to say next week, we're going to be talking about, first of all, I'm going to lay out the case for apologetics. Why are we going to be doing this? Is it scriptural at all? I'll be laying out the different ty- uh, types of apologetics. I'll be making the case for a classical. And then we're going to be talking to, uh, about epistemology, but we're going to make it easy. Remember, that's the study of knowledge. And, we're going to, and it doesn't sound real exciting, but we have to go there because we're going to prove that we can know. We want to be dead sure that we can prove to the world that we can, in fact, know things. Because if we can know things, then we can know the scriptures. We can know that God exists. We can know. So we, we have to go there, and it's going to be fun. Uh, it doesn't epistemology doesn't sound like a fun topic, but we will. We'll have hopefully fun with it. Okay, but uh, we're on to regular apologetics anyway. We're done with logic, right? So you guys did great. Thanks for sticking it out, and you guys really put a lot of work into this. So thanks so much.